Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson, joined by my good friend, David Buick. Hello, David. How are you? Good morning to you, Michael. Really well and really looking forward to this podcast. Our special guest is Kim Darragh, former British diplomat, was British ambassador to the, the US between January 2016 and December 2019, and just crowning, really, a long history of, of diplomatic achievement. When you were at school, was this something that you actually wanted to do? I mean, when you look at the statistics of your career, it looks like it. Or did you have other ambitions? Michael, I think my only ambition when I was at school was be some sort of professional sportsman. Sadly, I lacked the talent in any sport to, uh, to make it to any sort of competitive level. And I had no idea what I wanted to do after school or indeed at university. But I met my wife at university and it was her who encouraged me to, uh, to think about joining the, uh, the Foreign Service, the Diplomatic Service. And I did try and obviously succeed in joining um, I just remember going to the Durham uh, University. I mean, I love Durham University. It's not against my old university. But I went to their careers advisory when I was in my final year just to see if they had any thoughts. Um, and I said, well, I was thinking vaguely about the um, diplomatic service. And the lady uh, across the table from me looked at me pityingly and said, first of all, you're doing a zoology degree, which doesn't seem to me very relevant. And second, it's really, really difficult to get in, you know, and you know, I wouldn't bank on, uh, on making it through the, um, the entrance exams. And that was actually quite helpful because I was so contra-suggestible contra in those days that just spurred me on to have a go. When, when you were interviewed, did, did they ask you a very tricky diplomatic question? I, I remember I did the same thing with the civil service, actually, and also the, um, the diplomatic service. And I was, I was baffled at the interview because the, the questions were so difficult. You know. um, it's a three-stage process. And the first stage is a series of written exams, written tests, some of which are like IQ tests. And one of which was there's a pandemic or there is some great global or national disaster and you're at the centre of government, what do you do? What foresight they had, eh? This is back in the um, mid-1970s. And uh, that was about basically thinking your way through a problem and trying to provide some evidence that you understood both the capabilities and limitations of government. Then there's a second stage, which is a series of interviews, including with a psychologist. Um, it's amazing I got through that. And you pretend to chair a make-believe meeting addressing some problem which you tried to reach consensus around the table. And again, you have another sort of pandemic-style problem uh, which you have to write a, a paper for ministers on how to address it. Uh, and then there's a final selection for you, which um, does have some, some, some fairly tough questions in it. I was completely trapped, I confess, the first time because I I, I, it took me two attempts to get through. First time, one of the things I had put down as an option, because you had to put down three or four choices, was the Forestry Commission, for reasons completely escaped me. They said to me, so why are you interested in the Forestry Commission? My mind went completely blank, and I really couldn't think of a credible answer at all, which can't have helped. And that was part of the reason why I failed first time around. Having enjoyed your book, Collateral Damage, enormously, and I was in the bookshop yesterday, you must be very pleased because Peter Westbacott's just got his book out, and Peter Ricketts, who was permanent secretary. Yeah. When I was there, as well as written. I can't recommend it. It's a great read. And what a tumultuous two and a half years you had there. Now, people can catch up on this 
in your book, but I'd like to sort of ask you, in hindsight now, with all that tumultuous thing that happened, all the sacking of Rex Tillerson and all the change of staff, were you surprised by the Trump defeat and, and why did he lose? Do you know, I wasn't surprised by the Trump defeat. And in fact, I wrote in, in the book, you know, I, I signed off on it some seven months before the, the election, but I thought he might lose. The signs were there in 2018 when he lost quite badly in the midterm elections and there was a swing to the Democrats of something like 8% in some states. And a crucial demographic in American elections is suburban women. And it was clear in the 2018 elections, you looked into the, that suburban women were more about behavior than about policy, more about style and tone of the presidency, presidency than I think about what he was doing. So the signs were there. Then I think he mishandled the pandemic dreadfully, which led to tens of thousands of American citizens dying. And then there was another factor, I think, which is I just think a lot of Americans had got exhausted with the constant turmoil and disruption, waking up every morning and thinking, what's he said today? What's he tweeted this morning? And the constant atmosphere of sort of semi-hysteria in the media was just very wearing. And you could see it. I mean, people would, would tell you wherever I would travel in America, uh, how they wish things would, would calm down a bit. Add all that together and you get to a Democrat victory. Plus, I think Trump's lack of delivery on some of the things he had promised. But, crucial factor, Trump still, in losing, got some 8 million more votes than he did in 2016 and the most votes of any losing candidate in American history. So there is still something extraordinarily magnetic about his appeal. You mentioned before you took up your appointment that you and your wife, because your son, I think, was lecturing at Nashville, made this trip around the southern part of the United States. And I, you gave me the impression that you were quite surprised at the support in what you would describe as non-Trump areas. Did that change dramatically in the two and a half year because of his behaviour? Some demographics clearly turned against him. And the two that were critical in the 2020 election, uh, suburban women and what the Americans call independents, people who are not members of either the Democrat or the Republican Party. And they turned, I mean, Hillary Clinton lost them by a substantial margin in 2016, and Biden won them by a substantial margin in 2020. The other factor, though, is that both in 2016 and in 2020, the Republican vote turned out in massive numbers. So there was still that underlying enthusiasm for their candidate. But there was a big difference between the Democrat turnout in 2016 for Clinton and in 2020 for Biden. In part, maybe they just liked Biden more as a candidate. In part, it may have been anti-Trump. Anti but put those three factors together. And in particular, remember, Trump won the election on the basis of three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And it was a total of 70,000 votes in those three states, which is tiny in a country of you know, 350 million people. And Biden won those three states, which are traditionally Democrat, back in 2020. And that, I think, was as much as anything about Trump's lack of delivery on all his promises of reviving the Rust Belt. We, we love democracies, don't we, because they're, they're, they're so unpredictable and, and, and the least worst system and, and all that kind of stuff. But riddle me this, if you would. You know, when I was doing interviews with people about Brexit and so on, and after, after the, the, the referendum in, in 2016, I was saying, so what I don't understand about this is, you know, you, you say that we're better off staying within the EU. So why was it then? 
that people in the poorest, the poorer parts of the country, and indeed some of the poorest parts of the country, voted for Brexit because what they were actually voting for was money being taken away from them because it was pretty sure that, you know, the EU or the EC, whatever it may be, the European Union project would be dishing out money at some stage for those poor areas. And yet they said, you've not been listening to us. That's the reason that we voted to go. Did you feel that about the Trump supporters at the time? They felt there was some kind of bubble in Washington, like we felt there's a bubble in Westminster. Yeah, I mean, Michael, we could talk all day about what what happened on Brexit, because I didn't see Brexit coming. I always thought it would be close, but I thought in the end the economic arguments would override the uh, the Leave arguments, which are basically about emotion, I thought, and that people would vote for their economic interests. And as you say, they didn't. And one of the factors in that was people who were in a bad economic position didn't actually buy this stuff about this will hit you economically because they didn't believe it could get any worse. You could see interviews in the aftermath of Brexit with people saying, well, it's not going to get any worse for me. I mean, uh, that GDP that's going to be damaged, that's, that's, that's London's GDP. It's not ours here. And I think there is a, a real read across to, uh, to the Trump victory in 2016 uh, because there's no question but that he appealed to a lot of people who felt that Washington had forgotten them and who weren't voting for either party and Trump touched a chord with them. There is something brilliant, genius if you like, in the way that Trump connects with blue collar, economically disadvantaged, marginalized Americans and inequality has grown massively in America over the past four or five decades very visibly, because people can see how rich uh, people on the East and West Coasts are, and this economically disadvantaged, and they believe forgotten and ignored group, they all went for Trump. And many of them may not have voted in lots of previous elections, but but Trump got them out uh, and got their votes uh, uh, on their ballot papers. And in the end, I say it was a narrow victory, but that's what delivered it for him. Just interested in this. Did you feel at the time there was this, you know what I'm going to ask you, don't you, the inverted commas special relationship? And did, did it suffer in, in, in the time, not because of you, but I mean, in the time that you were there, did it, did it alter in any kind of way? Because if you look at, you know, remember Obama saying, he was supposed to have said, wasn't it, it would be right, be, right at the end of the queue for trade and all the rest of it. Yeah. And he wasn't quite sure what the message from Trump was, and we're not quite sure what the message from Biden is and so on. What do you feel about the relationship between us and them? I don't think Obama actually was a massive, massive fan of the special relationship. Uh, it's not a, a term that he would use except uh, ironically. I don't think that apart from during his state visit, he's making speeches over here, Trump ever thought of, of the UK relationship as especially special. He would always talk about his mother coming from Scotland and how fond he was of his Scottish golf courses. Yeah. <laughs> but he had a rather negative view of how the UK had developed over the past few decades. And he believed, I think, that immigration had been far too high. So I don't think Trump was a huge fan of modern day Britain um, in all its diversity. And I mean, Trump was no fan of NATO, which he thought and described publicly as a um, confidence trick, as a scam to get by Europeans to get America to pay for their defence. He was no fan of the EU. He said the EU was worse than China. Relationships with America's allies were not a big part of the Trump sort of worldview. Had we, I mean, we started negotiations on a trade deal, had Trump won a second term, 
we would have got a trade deal. We would get be getting a trade deal with America, but it would be quite a tough trade deal for parts of the UK economy to swallow, especially agriculture, because mm -hmm. I am certain that Trump would have demanded big concessions on access for US agricultural produce to the UK. And, you know, it's factory farming over there. It's considerably cheaper. It would have been really uh, a difficult thing for our agriculture to, um, to accept. But that's, that's the way you would have got a, you would have got a trade deal. Um, as for Biden, um, I think Biden administration will be, and is and will be, uh, very focused on domestic challenges uh, in the US, which are considerable. It's a very divided country, I mean, deep rifts there over a whole range of issues. And I don't think any trade deals are his priority, uh, at least uh, for the next two, three years. So I would be surprised if we got any amount of trade deal with the US in this presidential term. It's not impossible. I'd be surprised. But in terms of the effort you have to put into trade negotiations, it's much more advantageous to do a negotiation with a big bloc like the Asia Pacific group or like the EU than to do it with a small country, a comparatively small country like the UK. So there would be people inside uh, the Biden administration who say, if we're going to do any trade deals, we need to put the effort into a much more advantageous, bigger one uh, than one with the UK. So we'll see, but I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic about that. Long term, um, it strikes me that the United States hasn't really agreed a meaningful trade deal since the old king died. They just don't seem to be that way of doing things. And tell me, as regards um, President Biden, I mean, he's out of the traps. He seemed to have set quite a decent um, domestic agenda. And Kamala Harris is there in the background. Is she somebody that could take over the reins, eventually become the next president or could we ever see the possibility of a return like the phoenix of the ashes um, of, of President Trump? Yeah, interesting questions. Um, I mean, it's fascinating that we are sort of six months into the Biden first term, and already we're thinking about 2024. But um, Biden's made a strong start, a stronger start than many of us, uh, many would have expected. Um, he has been, in a way, uh, blessed by... Uh, the Republicans managing to blow Georgia, um, giving him a majority, not just in the House of Representatives, but also in the Senate. Okay. And yeah. make, he's doing a lot because he will worry that they will lose the, the Senate majority in the midterms, which are now you know, 18 months away or so. So he's got to try and get all legislation he wants through, through the next 18 months. He's taken America back into the Paris climate change, agreement, taking America back into the WHO. He's restored relations, you would hope, with allies. He's trying to tackle race issues in the UK. So he's the man in a hurry. If he doesn't run in 2024, Kamala Harris, I think, would certainly run. Um, she didn't actually uh, flourish as a candidate in 2020, and she ran out of money early, didn't, didn't even make it to sort of primary debates. But there's no doubt that the platform that being vice president will give her will be a big advantage. There will be others. I think um, Pete Buttigieg, uh, yeah. who is now Secretary of State for Transport, who did run a brilliant campaign in, um, uh, in 2020 elections, will run again. And he's in his 30s still, so he can run, yeah. he can run a dozen times. And 
Then uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uh, is a rising star on the progressive wing of the party. She's only in her 20s at the moment, but once you're in the 30s, you can, you can run and she might run then. And then there are people who missed out in 20, whose candidacies never got off the ground in 2020, like Cory Booker, who might run again. On the Republican side, I think there'll be a huge field. I'm not sure if Trump will run again. I think he will keep his options open. He will uh, keep teasing that he's going to run. Uh, I think he will wait and see uh, how the midterms go um, and where the Republican Party is. But if you asked me, if you twisted my arm and said, you've got to say one way or another, will he run or not? Um, on balance, I think he won't. You, you, you touched, you said, it, already talking about 2024. If you were a Chinese leader, you wouldn't be thinking about political terms, would you? You'd be thinking about eras. You'd be thinking about much longer, long, you know, slow steps and all the rest of it. Given that in mind, it's very easy to build an argument of Easternization and all the rest of it. And I, I certainly understand that. Tell me what you feel about China. Do you share the view that it's a bit like Japan will get old before everybody gets rich? Yeah, interesting question. And, and I don't think to be a great China expert. I'd last been to China uh, a long time previously. I was just astonished by how it, how it had developed. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, President Xi doesn't have to worry about his next election. I think all the senior people in the Chinese Communist Party do worry every day. They wake up worrying every day about the security and stability of the Chinese one-party system. Um, and I think that their first thought is not about the international stage, but about domestic issues and domestic security and domestic stability. Um, but they believe that this is their, their moment, that they believe that, that China will be the world's largest economy within 20, 30 years, and that that's kind of their destiny. But they think that, you know, the future is, the future is theirs, and what they're doing in terms of building up their own technological capability, in terms of with the Belt and Road project uh, of developing links with the developing world and building up relationships with a lot of developing countries where they're owed a lot of money, which, which gives them a certain, a certain leverage over them. You need to watch closely what, what China is doing to think about ambitions, which, as you say, stretch for decades, not for electoral mm -hmm. terms, and think carefully about how the West responds to that. Do you, do you think Russia is a dangerous threat or do you think it's controllable? I think Russia has been given opportunities over the last decade by the West's um, increasing reluctance to intervene in the world's trouble spots, except from kind of 30,000 feet. But uh, I also think about Russia that their economic weakness is eventually going to, going to become uh, an even bigger problem than it is at the moment, especially as the world becomes less reliant on um, uh, oil and gas for its energy, because at the moment that gives them quite a lot of leverage. I do think that it's important to have a relationship and a dialogue with this guy. Remember again, when I was National Security Advisor, for a while, um, quite a strong relationship developed between David Cameron and, uh, and Putin. Uh, I remember going with Cameron to Putin's villa on the shores of the, um, uh, of the Black Sea, both to look at his Winter Olympic preparations and for what turned into about six hours of 
talks with him. And then they invaded, the, the, the Russians stimulated, um, they took the Crimea uh, and they, they fomented unrest in Eastern Ukraine. And all of that developing relationship, you know, we had to put the brakes on and impose sanctions and it all fell away. Um, so it's hugely frustrating. Yeah. Biden will find the same thing. It's hugely frustrating to deal with this guy because no sooner do you start, you think, to make some progress and they will do something completely unacceptable and you're back to square one. But it's important to, important to try. Finally, finally, very interesting. Thank you very much indeed. It's crystal ball time now, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> you, you have, you, have um, you, you, you spoke very eloquently about the, a, a little bit about it being easier to do trade deals with, you know, blocks rather than small countries and so on. So mm. with that in mind, what, how are we going to navigate the world, do you think, as a, as a relatively small country that has traditionally, as you well know, as this horrible phrase, punched above its weight, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly depressed by what you've said about the fact that you feel as though that trade is not going to be, we weren't expecting it on a plate, but we, we, like, we like the slow death of the discussions, if I can put it like that. Yeah, well, on trade specifically, I hope I'm wrong, um, and maybe we'll be surprised and, um, and we will get offered a, a trade deal with the US. But I would just say, I doubt it. Look at the fuss that there is um, and the lobbying from the agricultural uh, sector in the UK about a potential trade deal with Australia, which would have, if it's a proper free trade deal, have much less impact on our agriculture than a trade deal with the US would, to see the kind of difficulties uh, that surround the idea. Well, I'm a free trader, uh, I believe strongly in free trade, but, but these things are politically difficult, especially if your economy is struggling from the costs of the pandemic and the impact of Brexit anyway. So I don't think you know, trade deals are going to be, are going to be the answer. Um, I think we're going to have a tough two or three years, as it were, recovering the, from the pandemic and dealing with the impact of Brexit, because um, especially under the deal that we, the, uh, the deal on the future relationship we've done with you, the one that was finalized just before Christmas, I think some businesses will go under, uh, small businesses that traded a lot with Europe that can't afford the greater costs now of trading with Europe with all the bureaucracy, and people will lose their jobs. And if you add that to people losing their jobs because of the cost of the pandemic, um, this is all going to be tough for the government. I think over a five to 10 year um, uh, perspective, if we could improve our productivity, if, and this is a sector you know a lot more about than I do, but if the city can replace the business it will lose in Europe um, with a new business elsewhere, and I think the city can do that, um, uh, and if we can forge some new trading relationships around the world with or without free trade deals, and most important, and perhaps most controversially here, we can forge a much closer relationship post-Brexit with Europe than is foreshadowed in the, in, the, in the deal on the future that was done just before Christmas. If all of those things happen, I think we can, we can flourish in the medium to long term, but it needs you know, good government to get us there. 
I think you've got, if I may say so, a much better head of hair than I thought you would have after four years or five years in Brussels, where you must have pulled your hair out. One thing I'd, li I'd like to ask you, I think some of the behaviour and the sort of scoring point situation on both sides over this Brexit deal has been regrettable. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic with Europe not doing terribly well. And I just feel that there needs to be some head banging um, is, you know, OK, we're out of the European Union, but we've still got lots of business to do. And I'd like to see cooperation returning to the table. Are you saying, Lord Derek, that we are, we, the die is cast, we've signed the deal, that's it? Because I always think that that is the basis of the next process of negotiation. All right, we've done this, but clause four, paragraph five, that doesn't work. So how about us talking about it? Actually, I agree with you completely on this. Um, the paperback edition of my book is just coming out and uh, it comes out in, in August. And I was able to write an extra chapter. Oh, good. Updating it for the paperback. And I say in there that provided we treat the, the pre-Christmas deal as a starting point, um, we don't believe that Brexit is done. We believe that we are yeah. in the process of potentially, you know, long-lasting negotiations with the EU. I think we will go into it sector by sector and try and improve it, you know, wherever there are problems, try and address those problems. Um, I think we can make quite a lot uh, of progress. And I think you can build the foundations there for what I hope would be a future government wanting to develop, not to rejoin, because I think that's, that's just going to be too, too divisive, but wanting to develop a structured, special relationship between the UK and Europe that might look a little like a customs union or something like that, but that would certainly make um, economic mm. relations much easier. So uh, I'm a complete agree with you. I mean, we must, we, must, we must treat where we've got to as a starting point um, and a, a comprehensively stronger relationship with Europe, which involves cooperation in lots of areas, not just uh, in trade, I think is, the, is an important medium-term objective and a key part of uh, our future prosperity. One last point worked as I did for almost 15 years um, on, on EU business inside government. You're under no illusions about uh, the nature of the EU which has lots and lots of problems and the EU has handled the pandemic, um, handled relations with the UK in the context of the pandemic shockingly badly and you know, has almost made it seem like Brexit was, uh, you know, was it was a great idea, and uh, I put that down to, I think, um, uh, to very poor leadership of the um, of the European Commission and uh, some big mistakes. I mean, big mistakes have been made on both sides of the of the channel, but there have been big mistakes made in Brussels as well, and that's regrettable. I think that's right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for your time. I've enjoyed every single minute, thoroughly illuminating and great fun. Thank you very much indeed. Mm -hmm.